Welcome to the new TV Gold podcast from Media Week's Andrew Mercado and James Manning, a podcast for people who love great television. On this episode of TV Gold, we're going to be looking at Limbo, Wham, a Wham doco, 6-4, a drama from BritBox, and a doco on Netflix called The Last Daughter. We might start off musically this week, Andrew Mercado. Let's talk about Wham. Well, this is a brand new documentary about Wham, Andrew Ridgely and George Michael, not about George Michael's solo career, purely about Wham. And look, I absolutely love this because I was a huge Wham fan. While all of my cooler friends were going new romantic with Duran Duran and all of that, I was really into pop. It's always been my preferred genre of music. And you know, it's really interesting, James, that first album of Wham! was not released in Australia. I had to contact a cousin of mine in the UK and she sent a cassette over to me in the mail and I used to listen to that cassette on my Walkman and go, why isn't this album for sale in Australia? You know, Australians really kind of caught on, only caught on to Wham with the second album and Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. But that first album, as they talk about in that documentary, was so, so, so great. There wasn't a dud song that they wrote on it and it still holds up to this day i listened to it this morning walking the dog and yeah they're still great pop songs yeah it's, a, it's amazing it's a it's a a fairly basic doco isn't it there's it's really just a compile of uh footage from video clips their appearances on tv shows in but interviews but from the period there's no new material being shown no. for this there's no new interviews there's no talking heads which is okay I, I i quite like it it's really just a historical document covering a relatively short period of time it's a good reminder of just how short a period of time wham were huge weren't they you know they they appeared and then it was all over by their farewell concert in mid um i think 1986 yeah from memory um and you know they sort of only broke a couple of years prior to that really uh and then they 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 moved on um and yeah i i really enjoyed it the and the, i think it's based on scrapbooks that andrew originally's mother kept and they've quite cleverly used them to sort of um frame if you like the major events over those couple of years I think Andrew Ridgely is a really good guy. I think he's a real gentleman. He speaks so beautifully about the fact that, you know, George was his friend from the first day that George walked into the school. Uh, Andrew took him under his wing. Andrew was the more confident person. This documentary has uh, George Michael saying that, you know, it was probably predestined that they meet, that uh, George Michael was insecure. Andrew Ridgely was supremely confident. He brought 
George along with him on this ride to be pop stars. And then he graciously stood back and allowed George Michael to go off and have that solo career when he discovered that there was this incredible artist in George Michael that neither of them had no idea was there. I thought that they explained all of that really, really well. And I've got an Andrew Richley story for you, James. So good, uh. So I um, once, when I worked in travel, I went on a travel familiarisation trip to Hamilton Island. And I was there with all of these travel agents and we were over on the marina side of Hamilton Island. And there in the bar when we walked in was Andrew Ridgely. Wham had played their Sydney concert and they were clearly having a bit of a holiday at Hamilton Island. And Andrew Ridgely was in this bar surrounded by the most beautiful women in the bar. And he was drinking like I had never seen anybody drink before. They would bring over a beer to him in a tall glass and he would just drink it in one swig and put his hand out for another one. He just drank and drank and he was laughing and dancing and having the great time. He wasn't aggressive. He was just so much fun. And we just sat there and I was amazed at how much he could drink. Anyway, eventually we made our way back to the main resort of Hamilton Island that had this huge reception area. And we were sitting on the couches there and in came Andrew Ridgely and a couple of girls. And he was monumentally drunk, arms and legs going all over the place. And he went out to the reception and was ringing the bell and nobody was there because it was late at night. So he leaned over the reception desk a little bit and slid right off the edge on the other side, head first and hit the ground. And we all thought, oh my God, he's injured himself. And all of a sudden he just stood up, laughing his head off, arms and legs still going everywhere. And off they went into the night. Like that guy, he knew how to party. And George was probably having a quiet cup of tea in his room somewhere. Well, I've got a wham story, but it's not nearly as interesting as yours, I guess. But I got to meet them briefly in, um, I think it was January 1985. I think January, the end of January 1985. They were in Melbourne. I was working on Smash Hits magazine. We ran a competition to meet Wham, and I got to go along with the winners. I, I, I can't remember. I think it was a mother and a daughter from memory. Yeah. Uh, but it might have been two girls. I'm just not quite sure on that. Anyway, and we got to – and we had to, it was on the day of the concert, and it was late morning, I think, or, or very early afternoon. Had to wait backstage. Uh, we waited, seems like, ages. And and they eventually they were ushered in, but they got we only saw them for I reckon two minutes, a minute or two minutes, and that was it, you know. But they got a photo taken, they just shook hands, said hello, and and then they were gone, you know. They their official sort of there was a guy called Mike Putland who who did a lot of their photos. So I, I got to know him over the years. He was he was a great guy, ran a photo agency in London, um, no longer with us, I don't think. But um, yeah, but but th that was it. We got to, and just briefly too, when we actually launched Smash Hits the year before in 1984, because of the English Smash Hits magazine, they got us uh, pop stars wearing Smash Hits Australia t-shirts. Yeah. And, 
they got some shots of Wham wearing the T-shirts as well. So nice. That, that really helped us, I think, sell a lot of magazines when we launched. Yeah, yeah. Look, they're a great pop band, um, and I, uh, you know, it's it's great seeing the documentary about how you know it was a a chance opening on top of the pop that got them into the top 40 when they were kind of maybe not going to make it. And they were so young and they didn't have anyone doing their wardrobe for them. They just wore their own clothes. They made up their own dance steps. But, you know, what powered them was those incredible songs that they wrote, great pop songs. And you get that great quote from Elton John who sort of says, you know, everyone in the music industry needs to stop slagging wham off you know george michael is a songwriter and david bowie and i recognize songwriters and he is a songwriter so good on elton john for sticking up for them when they were being dismissed as just a a, a teeny popper band they were always much more than that what the filmmakers have done so well is just sourcing all that those interviews there's just some incredibly frank interviews they've tracked down and, and yeah. access the audio and then there's some great stories i love hearing them talking about their finances in the early days and be before they changed management to simon napier bell i think who re redrew some of their contracts and started earning them a bit more money um, yeah but they just they just didn't see anything they talked about the the pittance in royalties they got they didn't they got some a few pence from singles a few pence from albums didn't get anything at all from their 12 inch sales which was selling a lot of 12 inch records yeah uh, back in the day and um like in one of the interviews someone says to them oh have you been out spending much you've been buying much and i think george says i bought a jumper this week <laughs> <laughs> it's great it's great that was all they could afford and there's yeah. a great story about careless whisper now it was a song they had very early on uh and when they got really big they they decided to go to atlanta they sent george to atlanta to work with jerry wexler yeah uh you know ray charles aretha franklin um and he he did a recording of it and george's quote was oh before he went he was absolutely shitting himself working with this sort of soul music icon you know but he said after they'd finished and he went back to london he didn't like the version they did and he admitted that jerry wexler said it wasn't great he he didn't think it was great either and george blames himself for not really putting in as much as he could have and then the and he says you know thank goodness I didn't I didn't like it because they re-recorded it and of course it was massive and I think this isn't mentioned in the doco but I think if you will find that you know George Michael treated Andrew Ridgely as his best friend and like a brother uh, for the rest of their lives. And that some of those songs that George Michael wrote by himself as part of Wham, which would have included Careless Whisper, he shared the royalties with Andrew Ridgely. And, you know, after the band, George went on to that mega success, but Andrew Ridgely got to live on the song royalties and he got to become a racing car driver and marry one of the girls of Bananarama. And uh, I read his autobiography a few years back. I didn't read it, actually. I listened to the audio book. Uh, and I think he's a really good guy. And I think it's it's so great that, you know, in that we hear this story that 
they never had a nasty split up, that it was, you know, they amicably parted and continued to be friends. And I just think it's it's a beautiful love story between uh, two guys that met in school with the craziest of dreams that came off. It's it's an incredible story. Their success, that you, you forget how big they were. They cracked America, James. They had number one songs in America. And they were just these... Two guys uh, from London that just didn't know how talented they were. Yeah, there's great footage of them. They cracked China in a way to the first sort of modern pop band to get into China, you know, yeah. and, and 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 play to fans there. Um, look, if, if there wasn't, you know, that's not a criticism, but there wasn't really much mention of um, Pepsi and Shirley. They they cropped up a little bit, but you you didn't really learn much about the them. The female backup singers, yeah. yeah. And the doco wasn't about them. I get that, but yeah, maybe it might have been good to have a little bit more of them. I didn't realize until this week that um, I think Shirley went on to marry Martin Kemp. Became, oh, I didn't know that. Became Shirley Kemp. Ah, oh, I was fascinated to know though that, that they were there, kind of inspired a bit by the two girls from the Human League, because okay. um, they all loved the Human League. Yeah, there was there was a lot of stuff I learned from this doco. Yeah, yeah, and uh, look, you 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 trashed um, New Romantics at the start of this. Look, I've got to say, I prefer look Wham's music was great, but I did like Simple Minds and Human League a little bit more, you know. So don't don't judge me too much, but there was nothing wrong with Wham. <laughs> I'm not trashing it. I love the Human League too, um, and I and I pretended that I was cool. But the truth was that I was walking around with a cassette of Wham that nobody else in Australia had. None of my friends had it, and I was quietly going, "I prefer these guys." Okay, so that's the Wham doco. It's out uh, now on Netflix. Look, something else on Netflix. I'll quickly get to it. I don't think you had time to look at it this week, but the Last Daughter. Um, it's a feature doco which was uh, screened at the Sydney Film Festival recently based on a, a memoir written by Brenda Matthews. Now, she, at the age of two, was taken from her Aboriginal family and um, given uh, adopted into a white family, and she lived there for about five years. Now, during that time, unbeknownst to her, her family were trying to get her back. And then suddenly, um, when she must have been about seven, they, the white family took her, what she thought was out for a day to go and visit her, um, her, her birth mother, if you like, and her family. And she never went back to the white family. So it was very, and then, and Brenda's written a, 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 Great book about this, which I think published by Text Publishing, which has done very well. I think it's yeah. an award-winning book. And they've just made this amazing doco, and it's so moving. Look, I I sort of dare anybody to watch this without reaching for a, a tissue at some <laughs> stage, but it's so good. And and you get to see, you know, you get to see her uh her Aboriginal family, you get to see the white family and how they and they've all meet up in this doco as well. They're wow. still all around. So it's just really moving, and I, I strongly recommend that. Um, it's part of Netflix have dedicated a lot of programming during NADOC week, um, they're looking into Indigenous Australia, um, and um, this is a, an original that they've actually um, got for this week. 
I think uh, NAIDOC week, we always see a lot of great uh, programming uh, from our First Nations people. Uh, we should also point out that Firebite uh, is now screening on NITV. This is the Aboriginal vampire kind of outback noir series starring Rob Collins that was made for AMC Plus. Uh, so not many people would have seen that. Uh, it's hugely original. The uh, vampires live down disused mine shafts in like a kind of a Cuba Pity type mine town. So uh, great place for vampires to hide. Great concept. And Rob Collins is, you know, driving around in his hooned up car. It's, it's a great show uh, directed by Warwick Thornton. I highly, highly recommend Buy a bite on NITV and look, check out NITV, James. Sometimes they screen the most incredible movies. You know, their movies always have, you know, an indigenous uh, reason for them, but you know, they've got The Last Wave, the Aussie classic with Richard Chamberlain and David Gulpalil. They've got Blackula, which was the black exploitation version of Dracula. There's some really, really interesting movies on NITV. And we also have the first inventors about to finish on 10 and NITV. And now we've got first weapons about to begin on ABC. Uh, and so we've still got some programming to go in terms of uh, Indigenous history that they're discovering um, and putting more focus on, which I think is really interesting and really overdue. That reminds me, I've yet to watch First Inventors, which you gave as the um, show of the week back in June. So that, I think that's a was a co-pro between NITV and yeah. 10, wasn't it? Yeah, just four episodes. Yeah. Um, it comes to an end uh, this week. So that'll be, uh, yeah, but uh, it, it's great to see this stuff. And I see um, the Bruce Pascoe, the Dark Emu story, yes. that is coming to ABC in a couple of weeks' time. I think it just screened at the Sydney Film Festival, uh, and that'll be one that uh, we'll cast our eyes to when that goes to air. Okay, so that's the last order. It was on, uh, and it is on Netflix. And look after all that NADOC programming on NITV and elsewhere as well. I think the ABC's got a bit of stuff too. Uh, this is a good segue to go to Limbo. Now you mentioned yeah. Rob Collins and was it Fire Light, Fire Flight? Fire Bite. Fire Bite. His vampire yes. show. He's yeah. in that. He's also in Limbo. And I think maybe Natasha Wanganine's also in um both of them too she's she's certainly um a shining light on limbo which um brings simon baker back to our screens and it's from the creators of mystery road um bunya productions um yep. director ivan sen and gee whiz it's a um it continues for i think it just continues the stunning work they've been doing the last few years with their dramas and how incredible does limbo look Film oh, black and white. Oh, I mean, it, it starts and there's no dialogue for maybe the first 10 or the 15 minutes, but you don't care. You're just sitting there looking at going, my God, how, how incredible does this look? We're so used to seeing color TV. And yet when they use black and white sparingly for the big screen like this, you're reminded how powerful it can be. Yeah. Like it's just, just amazing. Like, every shot of, of that opening that it's just the setups are so beautiful now yeah. i was talking to the tv i was going oh stop it come on no, <laughs> not another one because it was they were yeah. like 
framed images, weren't they? That you yeah. could, you could put it up on the wall. It just 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 such a careful crafting of the of the um of the 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 town is called Limbo, which is really Cooper Pedy, but they yeah. they call it Limbo in this. And uh, Simon Baker plays a a detective with a few problems. Um, just a few. Yeah, Tra- Travis Baker. It's Barker or Baker. I think it's Baker. He's Travis six- Hurley. Is it Travis Hurley? Travis Hurley. Hurley. Name of the name. Name. Yeah. Travis Hurley. Um, he sent to Limbo to investigate a cold case about the murder of an Indigenous girl 20 years ago. And, um, yeah, look, that, that Ivan Sen, who, who wrote, um, directed and co-produced this, talked a little bit about it and said, look, it deals with the, the characters who are actually in Limbo in their lives due to circumstances surrounding them and it, and it investigates the sort of injustices um that a lot of people in the indigenous australians are going through when they come up against the, the sort of criminal justice system and and they're often you know um sought out as suspects in in sort of cases when in fact they might have had nothing to do with it at all they just happen to be in the vicinity or something yeah they pointed out, oh, look, there's a likely suspect, you know. And how incredible are the performances of uh, Simon Baker and Rob Collins in this? Now, I mean, we, we just laughed about the fact that Rob Collins is in everything at the moment, yeah. but he's so different yeah. in everything yeah. that he does. And and this character, Charlie, that he plays in Limbo, you can just see the, the sadness and the trauma kind of etched in his face. I mean, he comes out all sort of macho testosterone uh, when, you know, the Simon Baker character turns up first to interview him. But as the film goes on, he starts to reveal himself and you start to see this kind of broken man and it's all etched in his face. It's it's such an incredible performance from Rob Collins. And I mean, Simon Baker too doesn't look like his normal heartthrobby self. You know, he's playing, um, as you say, a cop with a few issues of his own and yeah, just such incredible acting performances there. Yeah, look, um, Simon Baker, look, best known, look, The Mentalist, 150 episodes, The Guardian, um, just close to 70 episodes. Let's not overlook East Street, of course. Oh, let's, I was just going to say, James, you, you don't mention Simon Baker without mentioning East Street. I know he probably doesn't like that, but like, that's where we all first got to meet him. Yeah, look, over a hundred episodes there. And look, they, he, he and Rob Collins both do a, a great job, but for me, the, the real standout scene stealer was Natasha Wanganeen. Yeah. In this, you know, um, she was just so good. Look, she made rabbit proof fence when she was just 15. Um, she was in Secret River Redfern now. She was actually in The Tourist. Um, yeah. they're making a second season. I don't know if she'll get a Guernsey in that again. Uh-huh. But, um, but she, she just really stands out for me as there's so many reasons to watch this and, and she's one of them. Yeah. That look she gives, um, you know, the, the reaction to Simon Baker's character when he comes in and says, oh, I'm here to investigate uh, the death of this girl 20 years ago. And, and the look that she gives him when she's, and she just says, nah, not interested in talking to you. And she just gives him this withering look with, uh, she just looks up at him once, gives him a big stare and, oh, it just says so much. Yeah. Yeah. No. And there's, and, and, we're seeing some great roles. The um, the the two girls, Natasha um, 
Natasha Wanganeen's two children in this are just the two girls. They're so they're whip smart, they're cheeky, yeah. they're just so good. And we aren't we seeing some great um acting from children in in Australian productions now, you know? Yeah, yeah, incredible. So uh naturalistic. But yeah, I think uh Simon Baker says to her, you know, he says uh, to one of them, Oh, you're a cheeky little thing, aren't you? You know, she just uh and that there's also a young boy there. She's got three kids oh, and he's uh, great too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that 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 young boy that's sitting in the the car. I mean this is a film where so much is said by not saying anything that, you know, so much is conveyed to the audience just with a look. Even the little kids are saying so much by saying nothing, just staring. Yeah. Um, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. But you, you know what? I mean, look, I, I do love the black and white, but part of me thinks, well, wouldn't it be brilliant if they had a DVD release and they could, and they had it in colour. You, know? you could you could choose and pick yeah, both. So you could just go and then indulge in the colourful landscapes. But I presume, I mean, look, I will find out. I presume they actually shot it in black and white as opposed to shot it in colour maybe and just process as black I and think white. I think you have thing. to, James. I think you, um, you have to do that because yeah. uh, I think it's the film stock and all that. I don't think that you can get black and white to look that beautiful if you film it in colour and just, sure. like, throw it, you know, put it yeah, back look, that I'm, way. I'm I think sure you, you're right, yeah. But yeah, part yeah. Of, part of me did think, oh, look, this does look brilliant, but wouldn't it be nice <laughs> just to flick a switch and see some of that in colour as well, you know? And, you know, talking about colour, you talked about how you were watching Limbo and just going, wow, you could just frame that shot. See, I thought exactly the same thing when I watched High Ground, which was the Aussie movie from 2020 with Simon Baker. And it felt to me like it was being filmed in places in Arnhem Land and Northern Territory that had never been on film before because I saw it on a big screen and I was like, you, I was just like going, stop, look, look at that shot, look. That is incredible. I've never seen, I'm going to say this, I have never seen more beautiful scenery of Australia in any film as beautiful as High Ground. That's my reason to watch the film. I mean, it's a great film. It's really, really interesting. Uh, and got a good cast. Jack Thompson's in there and Aaron Patterson. But the scenery in it, 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 it is so stunning. Yeah, yeah, no, you're you're right. It's it's absolutely brilliant. So look, watch out for that. Look, I'm I'm a bit worried it's not getting the attention it deserves. It's on a couple of days after we speak. I, I haven't seen a lot about it. So the, the the trouble is the ABC is pumping out so much good Australian content at the moment. Yeah. I think it's it's hard for it maybe to all get traction. But um, if you don't see it broadcast on the Sunday night, um, and of course it'll be on iView. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's almost it's look it's a completely different story but it it continues the journey if you like that the viewers have been on through the mystery road movies and the tv series you know so it's got that real vibe about it and you know if we want to talk about Ivan Sen you know I uh it's just been so amazing being able to watch his stuff uh I just remember the first time 
I saw Beneath Clouds in 2002, which was his first, you know, big cinema release. And remember seeing that at the, I think it was the Academy Twin and just sitting there with, with all the critics and like going, wow, wow, this is something we've never sort of seen in cinema before. And even there, that title, Beneath Clouds, tells you that Ivan Sen's always been one to sort of have that cinematography and those vistas of the great the outback and the sky and the way that it just seems to go on forever. Yeah, yeah, it does. No, fantastic. Okay, Limbo on the ABC. Um, 6.4 is some, look, I've, I've, one of my favourite streaming platforms is BritBox. It's there securely um, in, in my top 10. I, I pay for an annual subscription so I get a better rate at that. And look, I'm not there every week, you know, but I always find something to watch at least every month there. Uh, July uh, this year is their mystery month, they're calling it. And the sort of key feature, if you like, is a, a British crime thriller out of Scotland called Six Four. Again, some great cinematography here. It, it showcases Glasgow and Edinburgh in particular. So you get to see some great shots of uh, both cities. A couple of lead actors that I don't know a lot about. I'm embarrassed to say Kevin McKidd and uh, Vinette Robinson. They both play cops, although Kevin's a current sort of police detective working out of Glasgow. Uh, Vinette plays a character who's a former undercover officer. And they have a daughter who's gone missing. I've only seen the first episode. I think there's four of them. And it's adapted from a Japanese novel of the same name. Now, while they're looking for, they split up at the start of this episode because they're both distraught. The, the show starts with them going to identify a dead girl. But it yep. turns out this girl isn't their daughter. So they're, of course, distressed to find out that someone's died, but at the same time they're relieved that it's not their daughter. And so they both continue frantically searching for her. Um, the father stays in Glasgow. The mother goes off to London to, to follow some leads down there. Um, he doesn't want her to go, but they, they split up anyway. And, and the story sort of unfolds from there, if you like, and it, they find some uh, police corruption along the way. The title 6-4 turns out to be code name for something. I won't say what here. It's it's something that um, is revealed, I think, during that second episode. But, look, I really liked it. Um, look, it's not going to be, you know, it won't be in my 10 best for the year, but it's a good, solid British crime drama. And that's the shorter show I, I really like getting my teeth into. But there's so much British drama at the moment. Um, and you know, that the theme of a child that goes missing. Uh, yeah. I just watched the first episode of a new one that's about to start on BBC first called The House Across the Street, where a child goes missing. Um, and one of the neighbors, uh, across the way, uh, sort of starts uh insinuating herself into the family um and kind of i don't know she's got a few issues played by shirley henderson you know another fantastic actress and you talked about kevin mckidd being in train spotting and yeah. of course shirley henderson was in uh, train spotting she was the the wife of uh that 
hideous character played by Robert Carlyle, and she came back for Train Spotting too. But of course, Kevin McKidd couldn't because he, uh, plot spoiler, died in the first movie. Um, but Shirley Henderson's a great actress, but uh, I, I just did find The House Across the Street a little bit weird, uh, a little bit, oh, you know, do I really need to watch this for four episodes? But yeah, uh, the British crime drama just uh, keeps coming at us again and again and again. That's on BBC First, yeah? Yeah, starting this week. Okay, so that's a house across the street. Yeah, you mentioned, yeah, I, I got sidetracked before Kevin McKidd. So, yeah, he was in train spotting uh, and became a massive star on Grey's Anatomy, Dr. Owen Hunt. Massive so star. Did, did over 300 episodes. So Yeah. 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 It's re- really good to see him back in this um, this Scottish thriller, that's, which was on BritBox, and that was 6-4. Um, look, that just about wraps us up for this week, I think, doesn't it? Like, I wanted to mention, I promise it'll be one final time, the final episode of The Idol screened this week. Um, and boy, did it cop a kicking from the critics too. Oof. So, so I was critics. right there with my kicking boot too. I thought it was rubbish of the highest order. <laughs> well, no, I, you, you won't be surprised to learn. I, I actually enjoyed it. Um, Look, there's there's massive problems, and it's maybe not what it what it could have been. But I just I really enjoyed it, and for me, it was another look. I really like shows about the music industry, and there's there's been a fair few of them lately. And for me, it was the latest in a in a series of things that that maybe started. If you remember Roadies, yeah, uh, a few years ago. Look, I loved that show. Yeah, that uh, never made it past its first season, and I suspect uh, the idol won't either. <laughs> uh, and vinyl, remember vinyl? The vinyl, another one. That was, that was brilliant. Set huh? in New York. Um, again, yeah, killed off way too early. Um, Pistol, the the sort of dramatization of the the, the start of the Sex Pistols. I, I love that too. Daisy Jones and the Six earlier yeah. this year. That that was really good. That oh, I don't know if that'll get any more episodes either. Um, and then the movies, of course, at the Elton John. Um, Bio, The Queen, uh, Bio. Bohemian Rhapsody. I think they've all just been done so well. And, I, you know, because I'm so into them, I, I don't know if I could critically <laughs> be, be relied on um, to sort of judge them too much. But I just, I just really found um, The Idol fascinating. And, look, there was a lot unsettling about that last episode. Uh, Lily Rose Depp was Jocelyn. Uh, the Weekend is Tedros, this awful character. She sort of almost falls in love with. I don't know if I actually use the L word um, in their relationship, but but um, she it, she regains her um, independence, if you like, in that last episode. Does she? Bear with me. Bear does with she? Me. Well, she does. She kicks him out. She says he's an asshole. You know, look, I've had it with you. I've used you. I mean, she got a couple of hits out of him. And you think, oh, great, this is this is a nice ending. But then at the very end, she welcomes him back, brings him out on stage at the first concert on her tour, kisses him on stage and think, oh, no, is it all going to start again? For an inexplicably stupid and unbelievable ending. I think, James, the fact that it ended on episode five when it was originally commissioned as a six-episode show tells yeah. you everything you need to to know about the backstage chaos 
uh, in the well-documented making of this show. And the fact that they they didn't even have enough material for a full episode, James. It ended with like a film, a video clip of the weekend with kind of showing clips of what had happened before. I'm here to tell you, James, if a pop star of that magnitude ever invited a man out onto stage at the start of her concert mm. and said, yes, yes, I know you've all read about this man and he's a hideous man with a domestic abuse record and all this, but I love him and I need you to love him too. That would be career suicide. I thought the ending was barking mad, ridiculous, and I don't know what sort of message it sends people. It felt to me like an ending that they kind of created at the end to kind of go, oh, no, look, the Lily Rose Depp character had the upper hand. She was actually using him the whole way. I call bullshit. There's nothing in those previous episodes that indicated that she was on board with that. Even in the last episode, she said to him, I'm on to you. I know that it was a setup at the club that blah, blah, blah. You can get out of my house. She paid him half a million dollars to leave and then invited him back to her opening night. The whole thing was ridiculous and and it's interesting because I've, uh, I've read a lot of uh, press about it and some people are saying, look, you know, maybe uh, as you're trying to defend it here that we can reevaluate this in a few years' time. And they cited in particular Showgirls, you know, a movie that was critically uh, attacked at the yeah. time, but now they go back and look at it and go, oh, look, maybe there's a few good things there. But you know what? They look at those things through a vehement feminist uh, viewpoint. And in the ending of Showgirls, at least the character played uh, the Noni character, she gets what she wants. She rises to the top of uh, everything in Las Vegas. And then she sees her friend get gang raped and gang raped and says, oh, this town's toxic. And she leaves. She gets back the power. I'm not quite sure that what was that last minute attempt to make out that Lily Rose Depp had pulled back the power in that relationship. I don't buy it. I don't think it made sense over that episode. And I don't think it will be a, there's a reevaluation in 20th time that will say, oh no, but there was actually this. I don't think we should be so hard. And I just think it was rubbish and they don't need to make a second series. Oh, wow. Gee, you finished this show? <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I think, look, people, you're reading too much into all this. You know, it's, we've got to sort of, you know, just, it was entertainment, you know. You can kick back. You watched them all. I mean, you. Were I did watch it all. Five hours of my life. I'll never get back. The only <laughs> thing I liked about it was that house. The location was amazing, and that was the weekend's house. Uh, and he's got a great house, and it looked really great on film. And that's about it. It was basically real estate porn in the Hollywood Hills for me, because there was nothing else in that show worth talking about. No, look, I I love the the sort of insight you saw. I mean, some of it was awkward, like the way they were talking about oh, how mental illness has paid off big time. In the, they weren't referred to it again in that last episode, you know. And they were, yeah, and that that whole they did it like a preview of the what they were going to do on the tour for that that tour. Um, you know, the tour manager bloke played by Eli Roth. Yeah, that. That was funny, but it looked completely, <laughs> completely unauthentic. It was just so bizarre. What and how he suddenly came around to thinking <laughs> he was really, he thought they were all shysters 
then they get up and sing a few songs for him and he suddenly thinks, oh, it's the best thing he's ever seen. Yeah, it was really badly written. That's what I mean, though. I think that that they were really struggling at the end to figure out how to end it because they changed it so much. I think you see that with projects that where it's all going horribly wrong behind the scenes, uh, you know, and that, I mean, the, the Rolling Stones story says that they pretty much went back and reshot the whole thing and in that chaos... What suffers, I think, is the scripting. I don't think that when you lay it out logically that the idol actually makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I would have loved to have known what was the original vision. If we'd had the original six episodes, um, how different would it be and and, and would it have had a better through line? It's fascinating. I guess we'll never know. Be, um, well, I think I'm, I, my hat goes off to the weekend, though, for having the being brave enough to betray such an awful character, <laughs> just, just yeah. you know, I think a lot of people are going to reevaluate him and go, I wonder, wonder how much of that he's really like, you know, it's um, yeah, because he really is a despicable character in this. And Lily Rose Depp, I think she'll be um, something to watch in the future. I think she'll probably, you know, she's got a, she'll have a significant career now, I think. Cause yeah, see, probably- I think she, she was fantastic. I've got nothing bad to say about her performance. She was amazing. She's beautiful. She's clearly talented. But I didn't, the, the weekend, I mean, was he meant to be playing an unattractive man with greasy hair and a rat tail? Because I didn't find him attractive, sexy, charismatic in any way. And that's where it falls down for me. He was meant to be this incredibly charismatic man that had all these disciples like a Charles Manson cult leader, and I didn't get that from his performance. No, but the thing was he had the music smarts. I think, you know, even people who didn't like him in this realised that, oh, actually, he he crafted some good songs that became hits yeah. for her and, of course, in real life for, for himself. Um, look, let's not bang on about that anymore. That's the idol. Uh, it's up on a binge or Foxtel if you haven't been scared off by by Andrew, if you haven't seen <laughs> it yet. Uh, quickly, I want to mention Rough Diamonds. I mentioned it last week and I was bumbling about trying to remember the city that's the diamond capital in, and I think I said it was the Netherlands. It's actually Antwerp in Belgium is the, um, the right. diamond capital where the action set in Rough Diamonds. Look, my show of the week, I'm going to have to go with Limbo, but a special shout out for The Last Daughter too, which is sort of up there as well. But Limbo's my show of the week. What's your choice, Andrew? Well, my show of the week, I'm, I'm a wham, bam, I am a man fan from way back. So I'm going the wham, doco on Netflix, but special mention to Limbo, absolutely beautiful. I wish I'd seen it on a big screen. And my big recommendation for next week, uh, dropping July 10 on Binge. I think we should talk about this more next week, James. Uh, the new series of The Backside of Television, from Mitch McTaggart. That guy, James, has an incredible knack for finding kind of forgotten histories of Australian TV and then applying a blowtorch to it. There are stories, I've watched all six uh, half-hour episodes, there are stories here that I never knew of uh, and, and, and I take my hat off to Mitch McTaggart that he can find these forgotten stories and uh, apply them to what goes on in TV today. So, yeah, you've got to put that on your list, James, the backside of television, some amazing insights in that, and it'll be there on Binge uh, from Monday. Okay, look, this has been TV Gold. If you want to reach out and um, give us some recommendations or tell us some 
people we should interview maybe, you can uh, write to us, send an email to comments at tvgold.au. Special mention, we've got a bonus episode out with uh, executive producer Jason Herbison, the man uh, behind Neighbours for the last few years, of course, executive producer there. He's uh, he did the old neighbours, doing the new neighbours, which is coming soon to um, Ten and Prime Video. Uh, he's also got that um, mini one. Well, no, it's a he calls it was it Suburban Noir. It's a series yeah. up, up on um, on Ten and Ten Play at the moment. Four part series. Uh, we both recommend that. And we've Rip got a bonus episode next week from Marta Dusseldorf, which we've. Uh, just recently done that interview, and I think, look, I'd really recommend people look out for this one. She's um such an eloquent guest. She's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Her new show, Bay of Fires, we'll talk more about that next week as well. Yeah. All right, Andrew, thanks so much for that. We'll um, be back in touch soon. Thanks, James. Have a great week. <laughs>